We return this morning to our study of the book of Romans. Please turn to Romans chapter 11. And this morning we will begin where we left off, Romans chapter 11 and verse 11. Let me just take a moment to set the background for this passage. In Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11, the Apostle Paul has been concerned with the general subject of God's dealings with Israel. He is also, in a secondary way, and now in the verses that come to us this morning, in a very pronounced way, is also concerned with the relationship of the Jews as a people and the Gentiles as a people, and the relationship between the two groups. In chapter 11, he begins by asking this question in verse 1. Did God cast off his people? Did God cast off the nation of Israel? It's a question that has to be asked in the light of things that have been written in chapter 9 and chapter 10. The nation of Israel at the time of Paul's writing as at this very day as a nation is in a state of apostasy. They have rejected their Messiah. They have rejected the gospel means of attaining righteousness through faith in Christ and have chosen rather to retain the confidence that because of their privilege and because of obedience to the law, that through those means they can find their acceptance with God. So the nation of Israel is in a state of apostasy, is in a state where they have rejected Messiah, and they are in a state where God has brought hardening upon them and rejected them as a nation. So the question is, has God cast off his people? And Paul's response is decided in the negative. No, God forbid, absolutely not. God has not cast off his people, his ancient people, Israel. And in chapter 11, verses 1 through 10, Paul demonstrates that God has not cast them off fully. He has not cast them off totally because even at Paul's day, as in the present day, he is saving a remnant of the people of Israel. So no, he has not cast them off fully or completely because he's dealing with a remnant in their apostasy now, just as he dealt with a remnant in their previous apostasies. But in chapter 11, verse 11 and following, he gives another reason for his no. No, God has not cast them off finally because God is yet determined to bring salvation to the nation of Israel. Has he cast off his people? The argument, verses 1 through 10, no, he has not cast them off completely. He's still saving a remnant. Verses 11 and following, no, he has not cast them off finally because there's yet coming a time when he will bring salvation to his ancient people. Now we come this morning to the first part of that section, chapter 11, verse 11 through verse 32. There are three divisions to that section, chapter 11, verse 32. The general theme is God has not rejected his ancient people. Finally, he will yet bring salvation to them. In verses 11 through 15, Paul deals with the divine purpose in Israel's apostasy. What is the purpose of God in Israel's apostasy? In verses 16 through 24, Paul presents the picture of the olive tree 
In that passage, the people of God are likened to an olive tree. The Jews are the natural branches in this tree, but many of them have been broken off and cast aside. The Gentiles, which are likened unto a wild olive tree, branches of the Gentiles have been grafted into the people of God so that the Gentiles are now the people of God and enjoying the privileges of salvation. But he goes on to say that it is to be expected that in the future God will take those natural branches that have been broken off and graft them back in. And then in the third section, verses 35 through 32, the apostle draws all of this to a conclusion and summary and states emphatically that the gifts and calling of God are without repentance and that God has committed himself to bringing mercy to his ancient people. And then at the very end of this three-chapter section, verses 33 through 35, Paul breaks into an uncontainable doxology in reference to the great wisdom and glory of God in reference to his mysterious purposes. Now that's all of it by way of introduction and overview. And let me say a few other words of introduction before we actually get into the passage, verses 11 through 15 this morning. This passage, the passage we're going to look at this morning, this whole passage in chapter 11, this passage will raise several questions in the minds of many of God's people. And many of us have learned to think about the future of Israel in reaction against popular and false errors. Many of us have left those circles where these popular errors have been taught, and we know a great deal about what the Bible doesn't say and doesn't teach in reference to the nation of Israel. But sadly, uh, we're not as well informed about what the Bible does say about Israel and about its future. And I would urge you, as these questions come to your mind, that you be like the Bereans, that you not allow yourselves to be governed by broad eschatological ideas, but that you force yourself to deal with the details of these passages and let these details then form your broad eschatological ideas. Somebody may say, why do we care? Why do we care about these things? I'm out of work. I'm in this, I'm in this domestic situation. Why should we be concerned with this? Well, we should be concerned with this because God is concerned with this. And if we're Christians, what concerns God concerns us. We should be concerned with this because this is what occupies three chapters of a 16-chapter book. Many people have likened the book of Romans to the epitome of the whole Bible. Some people have considered the book of Romans to be the, the most important of all of the books of the Bible, if, if such a judgment could even possibly be made. But the book of Romans is a very important book in the Bible, and three of its chapters are devoted to this subject. And it's not that three of the chapters are devoted to this subject so that we will just have a prophetic picture of the future. And as we'll see, especially next Lord's Day, these things are written primarily for ethical reasons. These things are not written so that we'll get our future views correct. They're written so that we'll get our lives correct, so that we will respond ethically and morally as we ought in the light of these prophetic passages. 
So please don't allow yourself to be preoccupied in the next hour with the fact that some of us are out of work and with the fact that some of our marriages are in trouble and some of those things. Come to the Word of God and let us endeavor to understand what this passage says to us. This morning, we will be given more to teaching than to preaching. This passage, verses 11 through 15 is primarily concerned with setting forth the basic thesis of the passage which Paul is going to develop. In verse 17 and following, Paul becomes very applicatory, very much coming to the conscience of the Roman Christians. And when we come to those passages, we'll try to follow Paul's emphases. But in this passage this morning, it is primarily a matter of setting forth the basic ideas that he is going to develop and redevelop in the verses to come. Look now at chapter 11, verse 11 through 15. I say then, did they stumble that they might fall? God forbid. But by their fall, or more accurately translated, by their trespass, salvation is come unto the Gentiles to provoke them to jealousy. Now if their fall is the riches of the world, and their loss, the riches of the Gentiles, how much more their fullness. But I speak to you that are Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am an apostle of Gentiles, I glorify my ministry, if by any means I may provoke to jealousy them that are my flesh and may save some of them. For if the casting away of them is the reconciling of the world, what shall the receiving of them be but life from the dead? In these verses, Paul teaches that God's purpose is not that Israel would finally and totally apostatize. God forbid. In verses 11 and 12 and 15, Paul says that God's purpose in Israel's present apostasy is that salvation would be brought to the Gentiles that they would be converted, that thereby Israel would be provoked to jealousy and their fullness would be converted, and that through that unspeakable riches would be brought indeed to the world. And in verses 13 through 14, Paul says that he glorifies his ministry to the Gentiles because thereby many of his kinsmen will be provoked to jealousy and be converted. You remember that personal element that runs through this whole section, Paul's anxiety, his prayers, his, his inner consternation for the state of his kinsmen, the Jews. And even here, he gives himself to evangelizing the Gentiles for several reasons, no doubt. But in this case, he says, I glorify this ministry of the Gentiles because thereby I will stir up some of the, my kinsmen to be saved. Now, before we look at the details of these verses, there are two questions that have to be answered, two questions that have to be understood if we are to be able to understand the passage as a whole. The first question is who or what is referred to by the pronouns they and them and their in this section? Who's being referred to? Who or what is referred to by the pronouns in this section? Now, some will read this section. It'll just be obvious to you. You may not be right, but it will just be obvious to you. Others will read the section and say, well, it's just too confusing. Some will read the passage and say, well, it's so simple that we shouldn't even take our time on it. But again, I say it's important. If it looks simple to you, that's good. 
but it's still important that we're clear on who is referred to by these pronouns. Do the pronouns refer to the Jews who have fallen and who are condemned? Do the pronouns refer to the remnant who shall yet be saved, the fullness of Israel? Or, does the, or do the pronouns refer to the nation as a whole? It's very important that you appreciate the, that we, not, we must know this. Look at the things, look in your Bibles, at the things that are said of the antecedent of these pronouns. In verse 11, it says that they stumble, they fall, they are provoked to jealousy. In verse 12, it says that their fall is the riches of the world. Their loss is the riches of the Gentiles. Their fullness will be even greater riches to the Gentiles. In verse 15, 14, they are said to be Paul's flesh, his kinsmen. And Paul is trying to provoke them to jealousy so that he might save some of them. And in verse 15, it says that they, whoever they are, have been cast away and will be received again. Now, if you look at all these things that are said about the they or the them or the there, you will find that if some of these statements were taken by themselves, they might make you think it refers to one group. If some of the statements, some of the other statements were taken by themselves, you might think it refers to another group. But the statements all refer to the same group. There's no indication that there are two or three groups being referred to. It's just all one. They, they're there all the way through. In some places, it would look as if some of the passages, some of the statements refer to a remnant. In other places, it would look as if some of the statements refer to the apostate body. But when you appreciate that the terms have to refer to the same thing, the only conclusion that you can come to is that these, that these statements refer to the nation of Israel as con considered as a whole. The corporate body as a whole has stumbled. And not that every individual has. Paul's been making great pains to teach that not every individual has stalled. But the, the nation as a whole has stumbled. Israel's fall as a whole has resulted in salvation coming to the Gentiles. The conversion of the Gentiles will cause the corporate body of Israel to be provoked to jealousy. And when Israel as a nation fell, it brought riches to the world, and the nation's loss brought riches to the Gentiles. How much more, Paul's argument is, how much more blessing will be bought to the Gentiles through the corporate body's fullness? Paul glorifies his ministry because bringing salvation to the Gentiles will provoke the Jews to jealousy so that some of them will be saved. And he refers to a time when the same body that was cast off will be received, when the same corporate body that was cast off as a corporate body will be received, and what blessing that will be to the world, even life from the dead. So the terms have to refer to the corporate body of Israel. It's not a reference to the apostate group in Israel. It is not a reference to the remnant of Israel. It is a reference to the corporate body. And that's how it can be. That's how some of these phrases can come differently. That's how at one point you can talk about them being fallen. 
Another point, you can talk about them being received. One point, they're cast off. Another, in their fullness, they come back. It's because it's not a reference to a group within the nation. It's a reference to the nation as a body. Now, the second question that we have to answer is, what does it mean for them to stumble? Look in verse 11. Did they stumble that they might fall? What does it mean for the nation as a whole to stumble? Well, in chapter 9, verse 31, Paul refers to this stumbling. He says in chapter 9 and verse 31, But Israel, following after a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Wherefore, because they sought it not by faith, but as it were by works, they stumbled at the stone of stumbling, even as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumbled at Christ. Christ had been brought to them. Christ had been preached to them. Salvation through faith in Christ had been brought to them. They rejected that. They wouldn't accept that. Paul calls that their stumbling. In the end of verse 9, Paul writes this. David said, Let their table be made a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a recompense unto them. David was speaking about the nation of Israel. Their privileges would be a stumbling block to them, and they would stumble. Now, they did stumble. They did reject Messiah. They are in a state of stumbling, of rejection, of apostasy, of hardness. And though this passage speaks of tremendous things that are in store for God's ancient people, it must never be misunderstood as if they are somehow to be regarded as in a special position. They have stumbled. They are lost. They are condemned. They are without Christ. And until they come to Christ, no privileges in the world will gain their acceptance with God. They are stumbled as a body. And I believe that this passage does hold out a very blessed future for the nation of Israel. That must not be misunderstood as if that future blessing somehow puts them in a special place of privilege now. They have stumbled. And until they come to Christ in faith and repentance, that hardening, that rejection by God will continue to be their state. Please, it would be an abuse of this whole passage if we allowed ourselves to think that their great, future, their great privileges somehow hold them above the terrible implications of their present apostasy. Now, the question that, we want, that this passage deals with is what is God's purpose in this stumbling? What is God's purpose in the stumbling? We're talking about the nation of Israel. We're talking about their apostasy. What is God's purpose in it? Look again at verse 11. I say then, did they stumble that or in order that they might fall? That's the question. It's not did they stumble. Yes, they did stumble. It's not are they in apostasy. Yes, they are in apostasy. The question is, did they stumble in order that they might fall? Was the purpose of this stumbling that they would be fallen? Is the purpose of this stumbling that they would fall irrevocably to ever rise again? Is that the purpose of their apostasy? Now, he gives a negative answer to that in the first place. His answer, of course, is no. 
Absolutely not. Unimaginable, unthinkable. May it never be. He's repeating himself, just as he said in chapter 11, verse 1. Has God cast off his people? Absolutely not. Unthinkable. God forbid. Here again, did he cause, did they stumble in order that they should be fallen? No, that is not the purpose. Absolutely not. God forbid. That cannot ever be the case. So the question then is, what is the case? What is the purpose? If the purpose in their apostasy is not for them to be down forever, if that's not God's purpose, what is God's purpose in their apostasy? And in the next verses, the Apostle Paul gives three intertwining purposes. They're all put together, but there are three distinct purposes for, of God in their apostasy. And let us look at them one by one. In the first place, God's purpose is that by Israel's fall, salvation would come to the Gentiles. Look at the passage. I say then, did they stumble that they might fall? God forbid. But by their fall, and it should be translated by their trespass, by that rejection of Christ, by their trespass, salvation is come unto the Gentiles. That's the purpose that Paul first refers to. Is the purpose that they should be cast down forever? The ancient people, the covenant people, is it? Po no, that's not the purpose. The first purpose is that by their rejection, the gospel would come to the Gentiles. He says that again in verse 12. If their fall or trespass is the riches of the world and their loss the riches of the Gentiles, they lost. They lost the kingdom. They apostatized in order that riches would come unto the Gentiles. Look again at verse 15. For if the casting away of them is the reconciling of the world. What was the fruit of their being cast aside? What was the fruit of Israel as a nation apostatizing? It was that the world would be reconciled. Not meaning that every individual in the world would be reconciled, but meaning that the world of the Gentile nations would be reconciled to God. God's purpose in the rejection and apostasy of the Jews was that salvation would come to the Gentiles, blessing and riches would come to the Gentiles, reconciliation would come to the world as a result of the Jews being cast aside. Now look at Matthew chapter 8. I'd like you just to look at two passages where Jesus indicates this and then in the book of Acts. Matthew chapter 8 and verse 11. In reference to the faith of the Gentile centurion, in Matthew chapter 8, verse 11, and I say unto you that many shall come, I'm sorry, verse 10, he is referring to this great faith of this Gentile man, and he says at the end of verse 10, I have not found so great, great faith, no, not in Israel. And I say to you that many shall come from the east and west and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, but the sons of the kingdom shall be cast forth into the outer darkness. He's referring to a future time when the sons of the kingdom are going to be cast out 
And all these others are going to be coming from east and west, sitting down with the patriarchs in the context of salvation. The sons of the kingdom, the Jews, will lose, but all these others are going to come in. Now look also at chapter 21, Matthew chapter 21. We won't read the whole passage. You, you will remember, I hope, we've looked at this passage before concerning the wicked husbandman. Verse 43, Jesus' interpretive remark. Therefore I say unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken away from you and shall be given to a nation bringing forth the fruits thereof. And again, if you go back into the parable that he's used to give his instruction, the Jews had been the recipients of the prophets and blessing after blessing. They had received, I mean, sorry, they had been given the Son of God, the Messiah. They rejected the prophets. They rejected the Messiah. And Jesus is saying to them, God will reject you. The kingdom will be taken from you and given to another. Very reminiscent of Paul's language, by their loss, riches, salvation will come unto the Gentiles. They lost the kingdom. It was taken from them and given to another. Look in the book of Acts. Acts Chapter 13, I'm only going to read some of these passages where Paul states this in the most vivid language. In Acts chapter 13, verse 44. And the next Sabbath, almost the whole city was gathered together to hear the word of God. And when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with jealousy and contradicted the things which were spoken by Paul and blasphemed. And Paul and Barnabas spake out boldly and said, it was necessary that the word of God should first be spoken to you, to you Jews. It was necessary that the word of God should first be spoken to you, seeing you thrust it from you and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Lo, we turn to the Gentiles. For so hath the Lord commanded us, saying, I have set you for a light of the Gentiles, that thou shouldst be salvation unto the uttermost part of the earth. And as the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of God, and as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. Now that idea is repeated in chapter 18, verse 6, and in chapter 28, verses 23 through 28. We won't take the time to look at them. The point is obvious. It's well established in the Bible. What was God's purpose in the apostasy of, the, of Israel? The first thing that Paul mentions in chapter 11 is his purpose was to bring salvation to the Gentiles. It was necessary according to God's purpose that the Jews turn away from the gospel and that the gospel be delivered unto the world. We may not like that. We may not understand that. But that is what the Bible says. Now, just as an aside, before we leave this heading, look again at verse 15. For if the casting away of them is the reconciling of the world, that passage gives us some help in understanding how the word world is used in other passages. The emphasis in this place is not upon every person in the world, but the emphasis is upon the fact that the world of the Gentiles, as opposed to the one nation of Israel, is to receive the blessing of God. The emphasis of the passage is that God is now dealing with the world. He loves the world. He reconciles the world. Jesus is the propitiation for the sins of the whole world. Not every individual in the world, but for the whole world of Gentiles. 
as opposed to the narrow focus which once by God's sovereign decree characterized his, his emphasis, he once focused specifically upon the one nation. Now, because of their apostasy, he has opened up to the world and the world through him is reconciled. What is God's purpose in Israel's apostasy? Number one, it is that through their apostasy, salvation would come to the Gentiles. There's a second purpose that the apostle gives. What is God's purpose in the apostasy of the Gentiles? Number two, God's purpose is that the conversion of the Gentiles would provoke Israel to jealousy and to salvation. Look, please, at this verse 11. I say then, did they stumble that they might fall in order that they might fall? God forbid. But by their fall, salvation has come unto the Gentiles to provoke them to jealousy. In the original language, there's an infinitive here of purpose. The idea is, did they fall, in, did they stumble in order that they might fall? No. By their salvation, by, by their fall, rather, salvation has come to the Gentiles, and there's another purpose, in order to provoke the Jews, provoke them to jealousy. In this passage, that's the primary purpose. In this passage, the ultimate purpose of their rejection is not the salvation of the Gentiles. The ultimate purpose is the salvation of the Gentiles, which is in order to provoke the nation to jealousy. What is God's purpose in the apostasy? It's complicated. What is God's purpose in the apostasy? It's to bring salvation to the Gentiles so that they will receive the blessings of God and provoke the Jewish nation to jealousy. For what reason? So they will be frustrated forever? So they will be frustrated in strife and jealousy and envy? Well, no. This passage is, is very clear that Paul's purpose is to stir them to jealousy in order that they be converted. Paul speaks of his own ministry doing this on a small scale in verse 14. If by any means I may provoke to jealousy them that are my flesh and may save some of them. Paul was concerned to do that on a small scale. Paul was concerned to bring the gospel to the Gentiles, see the Gentiles saved, so that stir up his kinsmen so that they would be provoked to jealousy and some of them would be saved. Paul was concerned for that on a limited scale. But the passage is talking about God doing that on a larger scale. In verse 12, he talks about the fullness of them, the fullness of the Jews, the fullness of of the nation. In verse 15, he talks about those that are cast away, that the same those are going to be received again. Now, what does it mean, the fullness of them, the fullness of the nation? Well, some people think that means simply that the total number of the elect will be finally saved. Well, that's, of course, true. But it doesn't say the fullness of the remnant. It doesn't say the fullness of the elect. It says the fullness of them, the same them that stumbled, the same them that were cast away. They are the ones that are going to be received again. And while it would be silly and impossible to try to fix a numerical value to how big the fullness is, the passage is obviously making the contrast between the same body that apostatized is going to be restored. 
The same body that was cut out is going to be grafted back in. The same them that was cast off is going in fullness to be received again. This theme is taken up throughout the rest of the passage. Look in verse 23. And they also, if they continue not in their unbelief, shall be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in. For if thou wast cut out of that which is by nature a wild olive tree and wast grafted contrary to nature into a good olive tree, how much more shall these, which are the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? No idea of a remnant here. These branches have been grafted out. They're going to be grafted back in. Look at verse 25. For I would not, brethren, have you ignorant of this mystery, lest you be wise in your own conceits, that a hardening in part hath befallen Israel, until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in, and so all Israel shall be saved. People like to think that Israel, in verse 26, refers to the remnant. But in verse 25, it doesn't refer to the remnant. There's a hardening upon Israel. The nation is hardened. The context of this whole section is a contrast between the nation following and the same group being restored. And the all Israel refers, quite, quite as it says, to the all Israel. The same group is hardened. The mass is hardened. The mass will be restored. You look again at verse 28. For the gifts and the calling of God are not repented of. I'm sorry, verse 28. As touching the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. It's not a reference to the remnant. That's a reference to the enemies. That's a reference to those Jews that were going about tracking Paul down, persecuting Paul, trying to kill Paul. They are enemies for your sake. The nation is enemies for your sake. But as touching the election, they, the same they, the same group, are beloved for the Father's sake, for the gifts and the calling of God are not repented of. For as you in time past were disobedient to God, but now have obtained mercy by their disobedience, even so have these also now been disobedient, that by the mercy shown to you they also may now obtain mercy. For God shut up all unto disobedience, that he might have mercy upon all. The whole group is hardened. He shut them up. And the same group is going to be the recipient of his mercies in a day to come. What is it to be provoked to jealousy? Well, you can look at other passages. This phrase comes up again in Romans 10, verse 19. It is quoted from Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse 21. To be provoked to jealousy means simply to be stirred deeply. Now, that can have negative connotations and it can have positive connotations. To be provoked to jealousy is to be stirred deeply. In a negative sense, it means to be stirred to anger, to strife, to envy. In a positive sense, it means to be stirred to zeal, to ardor, to desire. And perhaps both are implied because the passage that we read already in Acts, the Jews' provocation to jealousy when Paul preached them in the first place was to be stirred up to anger. They were mad. They were jealous in the sense of being angry, wicked. But in this place, the references to them being stirred to an ardor, to a zeal, perhaps initially negative, but finally to a desire that will bring them to want what they've lost. It will bring them to want what the Gentiles have. They will be provoked to jealousy. And that provocation to jealousy will be the means that God will use to restore them again. What is God's purpose in the stumbling of the nation? Number one, that the Gentiles would receive the gospel. Number two, 
that through the Gentiles' conversion, the Jews would be provoked to jealousy and salvation. And then there is a third purpose, and that third purpose is that the salvation of Israel will bring great blessing to the world. That it will bring great blessing to the world. Now look in chapter 11, verse 12. If their fall is the riches of the world and their loss the riches of the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? Paul could say that in the present. Their fall, their loss, is salvation to the Gentiles. Wonderful, glorious. But he's referring to something larger. If that's true, if their apostasy would issue forth in blessing to the Gentiles in terms of salvation, if their apostasy would do that, how much more their fullness. If being broken out of the olive tree is going to be good for the Gentiles in the world, how much more they're being put back in. If God's hand against them is going to do good for the world, how much greater God's hand for them. Now look at the other verse that says the same thing with different language, and that is in verse 15. For if the casting away of them is the reconciling of the world, what shall the receiving of them be but life from the dead? Here's the nation, cast away, hardened, broken off. The result is reconciliation to the world. If that negative thing brings such blessing, how much more they're receiving, how much more God's bringing them back is going to issue forth in what he calls life from the dead. You see what he's saying? This terrible thing, this stumbling, this apostasy brings so much grief to the Apostle Paul. He could wish that he'd trade places with them. He would like his kinsmen to be saved. This terrible thing has brought much blessing to the world in terms of the Gentiles receiving salvation. How much more, he says, when they're brought back, how much larger will the blessing be? It will be life from the dead. Now, to what does this refer? What does it mean? What is being referred to, this riches that is greater than the salvation being brought to the Gentiles? What is this life from the dead that is greater than the world being reconciled? The text does not say. And like much of prophecy, you just have to wait and see. Like much of prophecy, the details are not given, and you have to wait until the events unfold, until you can know with detail and precision what is being involved in the prophecy. Many of the Old Testament prophecies were like that. That's why many of them were misunderstood when they were being fulfilled. The apostles didn't quite get it until the Lord had to explain it to them. There is much about prophecy in, in terms of detail that is just not given, and you wait until the event takes place before you understand it. Well, what is the riches, and what is this life from the dead? There are some things that we can learn from this. One is that the indication for these things is in the future. According to verse 25, Israel's hardening will not be removed, they will not be restored until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Then all Israel will be saved, and then these, these blessings will come to the earth. Now follow with me. I don't want to go off into a long uh, eschatological dissertation, but this is the passage we're dealing with. Follow, think this through a little bit with me. 
The Bible teaches that several things are going to happen at the end of the age, and we must believe them all, even if they seem to contradict one another. But the Bible says that several things are going to happen at the end of the age. Some of them are these. The gospel will be preached unto all the world, and then, Jesus says, the end will come. The fullness of the Gentiles will be saved. The fullness of the Jews will be brought to Christ and into the church. The man of lawlessness, that mysterious figure that Paul speaks of, the man of lawlessness will arise and a great falling away of professing Christians will take place. Sin and evil and wicked men will increase. And in the midst of all this evil, great blessing and great good will come to the world. As in the parable of the wheat and the tares, where the people of God and the people of the devil increase together, so it will be in the world that evil and blessing will increase together. And we should not be surprised that where, grace abound, where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. Some people want to have a picture of the end of the world that is wholly gloomy and desolate of grace. Others want to have a picture of the world that is filled with Christian dominion and endless, unspoiled bliss. They're both wrong. The scriptures teach that as the world comes to its conclusion, evil will prosper. Righteousness will prosper. The wheat and the tares will grow together. There'll be conflict. There'll be tribulation because both are powerful. And this passage is drawing attention to the aspect of blessing that will come at the very end. In the midst of this evil and good coexisting and prospering together, the scriptures teach that Christ will return and raise the dead and the heavens and the earth will be changed and all sin will be put away and all of God's people will live eternally in this new heaven and this new earth without sin, forever blessed and forever serving God. And it's my opinion, and you don't have to believe this, but it's my opinion that this life from the dead, this blessing that is greater than salvation being brought to the nations, is a reference to that restoration. It is a reference to the time when Jesus will raise the dead, when this earth will be destroyed, when the new heavens and the new earth will be established, where greater blessing than ever has been known will come. As a consequence of salvation coming to the Gentiles, their conversion provoking the Jews to salvation and the Jews' fullness, bringing in this blessing that has been unparalleled in time. Now turn to one passage, only one, and then we'll be done with this, which I think augments this understanding of the passage. Look in the book of Acts, chapter 3. The book of Acts, chapter 3. In this passage, you have a sermon delivered by Peter. Peter and John have just healed a lame man. It's astounding. Uh, the man is delighted. He goes, it says, leaping and rejoicing and praising God because of his healing. People see this. They gather together. Peter takes the opportunity to preach to this gathering. And in chapter 3, verses 12 through 16, Peter refers to their stumbling. These are Jews now. This is in Jerusalem. It's a gathering of, of, of Jews. And in verses 12 through 16, Peter refers to their rejection of Messiah. 
to their stumbling. And then in verse 17 and following, Peter calls them to repentance. And he calls them to repentance because the Messiah was for them. And he calls them to repentance so that the time of the restoration of all things will come. Now look at these verses, verse 17. And now, brethren, I know that in ignorance you did it, referring to his Jewish brethren. Now, brethren, I know that in ignorance you did it, as did also your rulers. You common people and your rulers, you crucified the Son of God in ignorance. Peter says, I know that. I know that, brethren. But the things which God foreshadowed by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ should suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent you, therefore, and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out, so there may come seasons of refreshing from the presence of the Lord, and that you may send and that you may send the Christ who hath been appointed for you, I'm sorry, and that he may send the Christ who hath been appointed for you, even Jesus. Return to Jesus' second coming. He's saying you must repent. He's for you. Repent, believe, so that God will send Christ back, whom the heaven must receive until the times of the restoration of all things whereof God spake by the mouth of his holy prophets that have been of old. Now, without trying to prove more than is legitimate from the passage, just see the flow of Peter's thinking. You've rejected your Messiah. He came for you. You must repent and believe in him so that he will be sent back because he must remain in heaven until you repent and believe and return to him. And then when he does come back will be the restoration of all things. My understanding of that passage is that these Jews who rejected their Messiah are yet to repent and to believe, and until they do, Jesus will remain in the heavens, but when they do, he will come and everything will be restored. The old earth and the old heavens will be done away. The new heaven and the new earth, wherein dwells only righteousness, will be established forever and forever. Now, let me just make some remarks by way of summary and clarification, and then I would like us to look at one application of this passage. Summary and clarification. Was I a prophet? I said at the beginning that there would be questions that would arise from this passage. Was I a prophet? Did that prophecy come true? Are there questions that arise in your minds from this passage? Well, there are certainly questions in my mind from this passage. And so by way of clarification and summary, I'd like to just state what, in my opinion, number one, this passage does teach. Whatever, whatever we may not know, I'd like us to just summarize what it does teach and then summarize what it does not teach just by way of clarity. Number one, it does teach these four things. It does teach that God's purpose in Israel's apostasy is not complete or final rejection. Number two, it does teach that God's purpose, I'm sorry, that God purposed to use Israel's apostasy to bring salvation to the Gentiles. Number three, it teaches that God further purposed to use the Gentiles' conversion to stir Israel to envy and zeal to have that salvation which they lost. And number four, it teaches that even as the apostasy of Israel brought much blessing to the world in terms of salvation, 
so their reception by God will bring even greater blessing to the world, even life from the dead. And my understanding of that life from the dead is the restoration of all things. Now, what this passage does not teach is just as important as, important as what it does teach. It does not teach these things. It does not teach, number one, that God has a separate national purpose for Israel apart from his church. It does not teach that. It does not teach that Israel has a separate national purpose for Israel apart from his church. It does not teach that Israel will ever have a national political identity as God's people apart from the church. Obviously, Israel has a national political identity. Of course it does. I'm not saying that. But this passage does not teach that it will have such a national political identity as God's people apart from the church. They have this identity as an apostate nation. The rest of this passage in chapter 11 teaches that Israel will be brought back into the state of blessing which the Gentiles now enjoy. They'll be brought into the church. They'll be brought to Christ. It's not that there'll be some special, national, distinct privileges for the Jews. It is that we're all brought into the same privileges, the same olive tree. They've been broken out. They'll be brought back in. No idea of a special, distinct purpose or future according to this text. It does not teach that Jesus will return to Jerusalem and that he will reign over the nations of the world as the king of Israel and that Israel will have some kind of national prominence among the other nations. Jesus is presently reigning in his kingdom. He will reign until he defeats the last enemy. And when he's done that, he comes and he defeats death and he establishes the new heavens and the new earth. Righteousness rules forever. He submits the kingdom to his father. The passage has no reference to Jesus coming and establishing any kind of a national rule in the world. In the next place, the passage does not teach that a time of uninterrupted gospel prosperity and dominion and blessing will ever come upon the earth. It does not teach that a time of Christian dominion will take place before the return of Christ. There will be great gospel blessings, but other scriptures teach that these blessings are going to be side by side with tribulation and trial and sin and evil. The wheat and the tares are going to prosper together until the end. There is no, there's nothing in this passage that talks about a time of future gospel dominion throwing aside all the influences of evil before the Lord returns. The Lord will return. He will return into this mixture of the gospel prospering, evil prospering, pressures and frictions between the two camps. He'll return and he'll destroy evil and he'll destroy every vestige of evil in the world. It will not be the church that establishes the reign of unending righteousness. It'll be Jesus that establishes the church when he comes in his own person and in his own glory. And the last thing, the passage does not call us to a primary emphasis upon Jewish evangelism. And I say that with some reluctance because it's a very emotionally charged issue. As you know, there are some groups who devote themselves to the evangelism of the Jews to the exclusion of the Gentiles. And these groups promote a Jewish kind of Christianity which emphasizes Old Testament peculiarities at the expense of New Testament distinctives. They don't want their groups to be 
call the church or to look like the church. They want them to look Jewish as opposed to Christian. Well, the Bible does not call us to a primary emphasis upon Jewish evangelism. Note what Paul's method was. Paul's method to convert the Jews was to convert the Gentiles. It was not to give himself exclusively to them. Everywhere he went, he went to the Jews. He never would have... You mustn't go the other extreme. There's nothing in, in these remarks that's meant to imply that Jewish evangelism should be neglected. Absolutely not. The point is, though, that this is not calling us, as some people would say, that we must give exclusive attention to the salvation of the the Jews so that Jesus will come and the end will come. Paul's method was to give himself fully to the Gentiles, knowing that that would provoke the Jews to salvation. This passage does not teach the exclusive priority of Jewish evangelism. Paul's concern was to see Gentiles saved and to see Jews saved and to bring them together, apart from national distinctives, into the Christian church. Not the Gentile church, not the Jewish church, the Christian church. And we must eschew every Christian movement that wants to make a difference between the Jewish church and the Gentile church. One church, Jesus' church, and all must be brought into the one church. Now, there's one application that I would like to make from this. I said at the beginning that this will be primarily teaching because it's these principles that Paul is going to repeat in these next two sections, and he makes very pointed applications of them. But there's one application that I would like to make today, which Paul doesn't really make. It's it's rather implied by the passage. And that is that jealousy is a proper motive for coming to Christ. Jealousy is a proper motive for coming to Christ. The idea in this passage is that the Jews will see the salvation of God to the Gentiles, that they will see the blessings which this salvation brings, that they will see their loss, and they will be stirred to desire. Envy and desire for what Christians have is a proper motive for non-Christians to come to Christ. You may have heard testimonies that were something like this. You may have heard somebody stand up and give a testimony in a meeting, and they'll they'll refer back to when they were converted. They'll refer back to when they were converted, and they will say something to this effect, that I saw in so-and-so something that I didn't have and something that I so wanted. Jealousy, envy, Desire is not an improper motive for coming to Christ. Seeing what you need in a Christian is not a wrong reason for you to come to Christ. Now, this principle that jealousy is a proper motive for coming to Christ has two implications: has an implication to non to Christians, and has an implication to non Christians, and that probably is obvious. What is the implication to Christians? Well, it is this. It is right and necessary for Christians to display the blessings of God and the privileges of salvation so that non-Christians will desire what we have. It is right and necessary that non-Christians so display the privileges of grace that anybody who sees it would want to have it. 
Now, I want you to look at two passages, please. The first is in 1 Peter chapter 3. We have a duty to display Christianity in such a way that makes it appealing, that makes it attractive. Here, Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 3, is writing to persecuted, suffering, downtrodden Christians. And he says to them in verse 13, Who is he that will harm you if you be zealous for that which is good? But even if you suffer for righteousness' sake, blessed are you, and fear not their fear, neither be troubled. But sanctify in your hearts Christ as Lord, being ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason concerning the hope that is in you, yet with meekness and fear, having a good conscience, that wherein you are spoken against, they may be put to shame who revile your good manner of life. Now, what is Peter saying? Peter is saying that these suffering Christians are to live in such a way that God will see their good life, what he calls their well-doing. They are to live in such a way that the non-Christians will see their well-doing, their good life, and they are to live in such a way that the non-Christians will see their hope. And the result is that the people will see their hope and they'll inquire, what is different about you? How can you have hope in all of this suffering? They are to have hope in at least two ways. They are to have hope in the sense that whatever their present dilemma is, they hope in God for deliverance. They hope in God for sustenance. They hope in God for grace. And the, uh, the world is also to see that Christian has hope in the sense that he really has an eye to the coming of Christ, that the blessed hope is large to him. And so the non-Christian sees this Christian suffering, perhaps losing his work, perhaps in some other situation. And the one thing that keeps coming across is this man trusts God. This man is full of hope. This man believes that the Lord can do something. And this man believes that there's something greater coming, that the future is not defined by the present, that the Lord is coming. Now, some people think you're crazy. Some people will resist you. That's what the text says. Some people are going to be against you. They'll think you're the greatest fool that has ever come along. Others, though, are going to see that hope. They're going to see that well-doing, and they're going to ask you. And the implication is that you're to, or not the implication, the direction is that you're to sanctify Christ in your heart so that this will happen. You're to live with a consciousness that you display your hope, your faith, all the subjective sides to Christianity. You, sub, you display them in such a way that will provoke people to want it. That's the implication of this passage. That's the point of the principle in Romans 11. It is not jealousy, desire, seeing something desirable in the people of God is not an unworthy motive for people to come to Christ. And therefore, it is right that we're careful to live in such a way that stirs that desire, stirs that jealousy. People ought to be around us and have a sense of loss. Why don't we have that? Why don't we have hope? Why don't we return good for evil? Why don't we live in well-doing as these Christians live? That should be the response of the unbeliever. This is not a reference to some kind of inward piety that no one can ever see. This is a demand that the people of God live outwardly so that the gospel is so attractive in them that people ask about it and want it. Another passage to the same effect is in the book of Titus. Titus chapter 2 two references in Titus chapter 2. In Titus, Titus chapter 2, verses 3 through 5, you have the Apostle Paul telling Paul that the older women are to train the younger women. 
The older women are to be concerned to live in a certain way and the younger women are to be concerned in, to live in a certain way. And then he gives the reason why they should be concerned about all this. And the reason is in verse 5, it's at the end, that the word of God not be blasphemed. It's a negative reason. You older women are supposed to do thus and thus. You younger women are supposed to do thus and this. Not for your good. That's, that's true, it's for your good. But you're supposed to do it so that the word of God would not be blasphemed. So that everybody who knows you will see in your life something that credits the Bible rather than brings despising upon the Bible. The same idea is addressed to the slaves in chapter, the same chapter, chapter 2, in verses 9 through 10, the apostle exhorts the slaves. He tells them that they should be concerned to work well. They should be concerned to work faithfully without griping and without stealing. What's the reason? So they'll earn their living. No, that's not the reason. So they have a good conscience. No, that's not the reason. So they obey their duty. No, that's not the reason. The, do- the reason is so that you would adorn the gospel. Be faithful. Be steady. No griping. No stealing. No pilfering. Work well so that you would make the gospel look good. So that you would make it adorned. So that you would make it attractive. People that don't work do not make the gospel look good. People that work poorly do not make the gospel look good. And Paul is drawing their attention. You have an obligation to live for appearances. You do not only have an obligation to live with a pure heart before God. You have an obligation to live for the sake of what you appear to be. Oddly, make the gospel attractive. You women, be careful, not because there's some hard eye upon you, but so you won't let the word of God be dishonored. Men who work, do it right so that the gospel looks good in the eyes of your employer, so they'll come and ask you, boy, it's so amazing. All these other guys goof off, but you are so serious. Why? You understand the point. It is not a wrong motive. It is a right motive for sinners to come to Christ because of what they see in the people of God. The first implication is that we need to be very careful what we let them see. This is no call to hypocrisy. This is no call to being something inwardly, but make sure they see something else. That's not it. It's a call to reality. It's a call to being full of hope. It's a call to being diligent so that what they see is what they get, so that you are what they see, that you are holy, that you are sober, that you are righteous, that you are people zealous for good works, so that you're hopeful, and you are an adornment to the gospel. It would be easy to overstate things, and I want to be careful not to do that. But I sometimes wonder if this isn't one of the greatest things that we are to do in order to see people saved. It is not enough to speak to people about the gospel. That must be done, because they're not going to be saved by an example. They've got to be saved by believing truth. It's not enough to speak to people about the gospel. It's not enough to pray for people. We must exhibit the gospel to people so they want it. So that it's not an abstraction. So it's not just something that religious, quirky people have to have to fulfill their lives. It means something in the real world. It has to be displayed as such. If we want to see people converted, we need to open up our lives to some of them so they'll see what we have and want it. Well, I said there is an implication of this to the non-Christian And that, I trust, is obvious. And I address you who are unbelievers, whether you're children, whether you're adults, it is not wrong for you to see what the people of God have and to want it. That's not wrong. 
That's not wicked self-interest for you to see what the people of God have and for you to want it. It's not an unworthy motive. God intends this. God intends that you should see the benefits of the gospel in others and want it. God intends that you should see people die without fear of death, with peace and calm because they know that their Lord is able to take them to heaven. God wants you to see people that rejoice that their sins are forgiven even though their inconsistencies glare in everybody's face. God wants you to see the, the serenity that the people of God have because they know that all things work together for good. God wants you to see what it's like to have a God not to tantalize you, not to hold a carrot out before you that you can never have. God wants you to see those things so you'll desire it and you may have it. I fear that some people look at their mother or their wife or their parents and they see the blessings of the gospel in those people and it seems so unattainable to them it seems to them like the carrot that is out before the donkey held by the stick. You can never, the donkey's always going after the carrot, can never get to it. Well, the farmer intends it to be that way. He can never get to it. Always keep him striving. God is not like that. God doesn't hold this out to frustrate you, to give you desires that can never be attained. He doesn't hold up something that you can never qualify for. He holds up this to excite your yearnings, to make you see your need and make you see your desire, and you can have what they have because the gospel is freely offered to every sinner. And it's not right for you to want this, but to say to yourself, I've got to make myself like mom, I've got to make myself like dad, I've got to make myself like so-and-so, and then I can have it. No, that's the trick of the devil. God holds it out to you to say, you can have this in Jesus. You can have this in Christ if you would but believe the gospel and leave your sins and give your life up to Christ. It is not wrong for you to want the benefits of the gospel that you see in your parents. It is wrong for you to think you have to make yourself like your parents in order to get it. But it's not wrong for you to see what you need and want and like in them and want it. God intends that. And he gives it to all who believe the gospel. It is not an unworthy motive to be moved by jealousy and envy and desire to come to Christ. If you want what the people of God have, that's a proper motive. Come to Christ for it, and he will give you the riches of his grace. Let us pray together. Our Father, we do bow before you and acknowledge that you are a very great God, greater than all of our comprehension, and we endeavor to believe the things that are said in the Bible about you but we do readily acknowledge that they are larger than our ability to comprehend. And even as we think of these subjects of this passage, of the intricacy of your purposes, these great cosmic designs that you have to accomplish your own ends, we do bow before you and acknowledge that you are God and we are the creatures, that you are the master and that we are the servant, that you are the autonomous one, and that we are the ones that are altogether dependent upon you. We thank you that in your mysterious ways that you have opened up the gospel to the world, that you have brought reconciliation to the peoples of the world. We bless and thank you that you have extended the circle of your grace to encompass us.
we can only humbly bow before you and thank you that it is so. We thank you that you have not cast off your ancient people. We thank you that you yet save a remnant. We thank you for the hope that is held out of great blessings to all in the gospel. And we plead with you, our Lord, that you would help us in the first place to rightly understand this passage. And in the second place, we pray that you'd help us to rightly respond to that passage and that we would be filled with the proper hope and optimism which this passage is meant to stir and that we would also be filled with the proper care for our own faith, that we would not fall as they fell. Lord, we bless and thank you for the riches of your grace. We plead with you that there would be adults and children in this room that in the week to come would find themselves wanting the privileges that you have given to us and that you would cause them to so desire those privileges that they would come by your power to Christ. Please bring these ones to salvation through this means of jealousy. We ask you in Jesus' name. Amen.